This is a good one, Joe. Amazing. So good. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know. You worked your connections, you know, your deep connections in the, in the lawyer world and the, and the academic world, as you always do. I know some people. You, yeah, you, you know some people and you know some people and know some people. It's like three degrees of Joe. Hmm. I, you, I don't know. I mean, is there anybody in the legal world who's not within three degrees of Joe? I don't know. <laughs> Hilarious. I don't know, but this is a great topic. I agree. And a timely one. We're going to talk about Puerto Rico today with a, with a, uh, Chris Landau, fantastic advocate who represented Puerto Rico uh, last term, two terms ago. Two terms it was, ago. It was a 2015 a f- term, but it was in 2016. Yeah, in a few different cases, although we, the conversation winds up focusing almost exclusively on the, the double jeopardy case. And not in the which bankruptcy you case. And, right, and not the bankruptcy case. Yeah, it was fantastic. And it is such a big topic. So it's a longer episode. Right. And there are more than a few times, I think, that we get kind of... Uh, um, that at least I felt like I was struggling to figure out like what to, you know, how there to, are a how lot of pieces it. to fit together and some of them run very, very deep, right. but it is a classic oral argument episode. As I say, at some point during the episode, like where we kind of elliptically move around, <laughs> like, like we are orbiting in a, but, but in a spiral, like we're, we're, we're approaching the center of gravity, but through somewhat elliptical orbits. Huh? Okay. Wouldn't you say? Sure. But Chris, Chris, you know, as any great advocate and lawyer, I think he kept bringing us back on track. Yeah, he kept us but grounded. Maybe we should just have Chris on every episode, kind of yank the chain and pull us back on yeah. the track. Maybe he wants to just take over the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, he would be a more appropriate host of a show called Oral Argument. Given his... Given that he does oral arguments. Yes, and has been at the Supreme Court of the United States nine times. Mm, nine times. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anything else, Joe? We got we the feedback is is piling in. It's piling. I think I think we got a bit of feedback that came in while we were taping. Oh my gosh! Uh, oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. There's the Twitters. Yep. There's the Facebooks. Yep. No Russians allowed, please. Oh no! no wait, 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 wait! No, 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 no! Russians are totally allowed. Uh, fair enough. Um, n- no. <laughs> no. What is this? What is this? I think no it's the people, first racist thing we've ever seen. No on the people. Podcast. No, no Russian criminal uh, figures trying to distort uh, the world. No deceptions allowed, Russian right. or otherwise. Fair enough. Yeah, if if you're a U.S. person bent on destroying the world with your falsehoods, please do not come to our Facebook page. Oh, well, they can come to the Facebook. Just don't post anything. Okay, I accept all your friendly amendments. <laughs> oh, talk about destroying the world. Ugh, am I right? Okay, we should get on. I've got to edit that out. <laughs> Why? Uh, Why do I have to edit that out? Because it's just so sad to think about. Yeah, I know. It's, every, everything is gross and terrible. Okay, uh, but um, but this was delightful. Amazing. And it was delightful again to have another good conversation with you, Joe. Oh, thank you. And with our amazing guest. And so let's celebrate the the um, points of sunshine, the points of light, the rays of hope. We'll hear argument next in case 15108, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico versus uh, Valle. Mr. Landau? Hello? Chris. Christian, how are you? I'm doing great. Can you hear me okay? This sounds fine. Yeah, it sounds good. Okay, I just want your listeners to have a very enjoyable listening experience. Oh, they, they, they oh, don't worry. This is this is our show. They won't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Chris, for for joining us. Um, I'm so glad that my friend Susan could help us make the connection. Well, it's a real pleasure for me. I mean, this is a, a, a case that I felt super 
further this. You know, these are issues that I felt super passionately about, and and um, you know, I think Puerto Rico is in the news now more than ever, so it's super timely and. I appreciate the chance to, for you guys to let me get up on my soapbox here. Yeah, I mean, I remember when these cases came down and reading about and just trying, there's so much history that I, like, am just profoundly ignorant of. Uh, so it was, like, difficult to engage with those cases when they were initially argued, uh, the ones that the ones that you actually argued. Right. Um, you are second, I think, is is Tom pretty, Goldstein yeah, was no, our it, other experienced Supreme Court other, advocate. Our other practitioner. I don't know if any of the law profs we've talked to have argued before the court before. Oh, that's a good that's a good to, point. And Steve Laddick just got a cert grant, yes. so he will be arguing. Although I don't think he has yet, but he will be arguing. We should yeah. probably do a live show up there at the court for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, cool. anyway uh, so I wanted to do this show uh, partly because you know Puerto Rico is in the news, as 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 you said, and and as Joe has said, and I you know I wanted to find I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to learn about what our responsibilities are to Puerto Rico, what its status is, uh, and and basically to, you know, um, I don't know, I'm not saying this well. Let me let me take a stab at it, which yeah. is that, you know, you you watch you watch the news and we had these this this quick series of events where there were very large storms hitting uh, Texas, uh, hitting Florida, uh, and then hitting Puerto Rico and when you have people covering the story about Texas or about Florida, um, you don't have, you know, prominent people uh, in the newscast reminding everyone, by the way, Texas is a state. The right. people there are Americans, right? right? Um, whereas when you when people cover things in Puerto Rico, they know or you, it seems as if they know that people watching them to learn about what's going on do need to be reminded yep. that, like, the people here are U.S. citizens. So there's this weird fact that we all kind of understand but yet don't fully appreciate, and and that's just a sign of the fact that as people try to assimilate the news and understand how we should respond to things that are going on in these different places, um, that there's a history here that we don't really have a good handle on. A lot of Americans don't really have a great understanding of the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. And I remember when I was starting to fly down there, when I first got involved in the case, it wasn't even clear to me if departures from Puerto Rico would leave from the domestic departures area or the international departures area, uh, just because yeah. it was it was really not clear the way the airport was laid out. Um, and you know, these are issues, frankly, on which the Puerto Ricans themselves are quite divided and have quite different interpretations of their status and, and what it means. Let's talk about that for just a second, just the nitty gritty. Uh, what is the customs treatment at the board? There, is it just treated like all of the other states? Absolutely. Or, okay. you, yeah. you don't need a visa, no special papers, nothing. They're American citizens and they're considered domestic flights. And, um, and that's frankly one of the issues now that you know all the people of Puerto Rico, if they wanted to, they could get up and buy flights on JetBlue for $79 and be in Orlando tomorrow. Yeah, and they can move to another state freely. I, kn- I knew all that. I just – it was curious to me that the um, – because so much of the um, – uh, as you know, as you point out in your oral argument and as uh, some of these articles I've seen have, have pointed out, you know, so much of the, that relationship is specified by this 1950 uh, congressional compact 
that right. kind of spells out a lot of the rights you otherwise would associate with. And there was stuff earlier than that we can talk about the Forker Act and other things that, that yeah. granted granted individual rights. Um, so, so it wasn't absolutely clear to me as you mentioned. I realized, ah, I, I, you know, I've never traveled to, the, to Puerto Rico. Oh. I know that there is no there is no constraint. I mean, you you can freely travel. They're United States citizens. Anybody from Puerto Rico can move and be in a state where they actually can vote. Um, yeah. But uh, but I wasn't aware. Like, you know, is there separate you know customs at the United States uh, at, at the border of the uh, of the continental United States that that wouldn't apply um, to travel between other states? You could see that seems like. Given the Supreme Court's in, uh, ruling here, and given given that statute and the understanding of sovereignty, that there wouldn't be any bar to that, would there? Well, you know, even in states, sometimes you can have some unique um, barriers to entry, or you know, that in Florida, sometimes if they're having a citrus um, right, right. problem, they will um, you know limit what you can bring in or bring out, and and you know. I can't remember if there's those kind of restrictions on Puerto Rico, but, but, you know, if there's anything, it's kind of a that, you know, negligible, um, kind of, um, you know, agricultural protection variety. So how did you come to be involved in these cases? Because it seems like you've done a number of Puerto Rico cases where you've been representing the government of Puerto Rico in some form or fashion. Yeah, it, you know, as in so many things in life and in the practice of law, there was, I think, a, a, a degree of um, randomness and, uh, on the other hand, the degree where everything just made so much sense. Uh, a number of my colleagues here had done work for Puerto Rico in various capacities in the past, and uh, they had, we have a, a um, prominent bankruptcy practice, and when they first started to uh, have these financial troubles, their initial contacts with the firm were really uh, primarily on the bankruptcy slash restructuring side of the house as they were really trying to figure out ways in which they might be able to deal with the debt. And um, I became involved in those cases, and I think how that's how I became known to the people down there. It turns out by happenstance that I have uh, a, a real background in Latin America. I was born in Spain and my father was in the foreign service. And so we then, I grew up in, uh, Paraguay, Chile, and Venezuela. So I'm bilingual in Spanish and, and English. And so that actually came in super handy in the actual cases, uh, particularly in the Sanchez Valle case where the uh, opinion below was from the Supreme court of Puerto Rico and those opinions are actually written in Spanish. Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's a kind of a, a strange thing, again, where the, court, the the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico is obviously a Commonwealth court uh, appointed by the uh, governor of Puerto Rico, but it is bound in, on federal questions by the authority of the Supreme Court of the United States. And so in its opinions, even though they're written in Spanish, a, on federal questions, they have to be looking to the U.S. Supreme Court, and sometimes, you know, they're, they're quoting the U.S. Supreme Court in, they'll put a block quotation in, in English. Wow. Sometimes the justices themselves will translate the quotations into Spanish, uh, but there were a lot of wow. logistical issues with just getting these opinions from the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico um, translated for the cert petition, which is due in um, 
90 days, but mm. they, they don't release an official transcript sometimes or official um, rendering of their decision in English uh, sometimes for years. And wow. so we had to do an unofficial uh, translation. And I worked pretty closely with a, um, the, the, you know, the, the independent certified translator in San Juan because I, I was concerned that, that you know, some of the, you know, the, the nuances got lost in translation. So I know that, that Puerto Rico is a civil law jurisdiction as opposed to a common law jurisdiction. And, and so kind of two things pop out uh, at, at me. One of what you just said made me think of, uh, of both that and just do they cite themselves as translators when they actually uh, – when, when they do one of these block quotes and translate it into Spanish? Because it does seem – you know, uh, actually, Christina Mulligan, who's been on the show before, talked about the early dr- Dutch translations of the Constitution as potentially shedding light on the meaning of the Constitution. So a, a translation yeah. can, can you know, affect meaning. Um, so I was wondering about that. And then also, you know, how do the you – know, how does a civil court – a civil law jurisdiction court deal with authority, which comes from a court operating in the common law tradition. Is there friction there? Does that, how does that even work? Well, you're, you're, you're right about that. I mean, I suppose that's true in Louisiana as well, which is a code state. Yeah. And, and it's, it's somewhat of a square peg in a round hole problem. I think that they have to look on questions of federal law to the federal Precedent, so they, they have to, in a sense, have a foot in both worlds where I think for their own laws, they, they kind of take the traditional civil law approach and, and are not looking to, um, you know, precedents don't have the same weight in that civil law tradition. Uh, but I think they recognize that when they're dealing with a federal issue, they're dealing with a common law jurisdiction, and so they have to be trained in that. So, in a right. sense, you know, lawyers in, in Puerto Rico really have to learn to navigate uh, both both worlds, um, and uh, you know that's that can be a that can be a tricky thing. And did they ever argue about? Um, and this is on the other question: Did they ever argue about translations? So, as they translate into Spanish, there's a dissent who says, "No, you've that you haven't stated it properly. You've given it a spin that it didn't have." Or does that ever happen? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. It didn't happen in this case. I mean, Lord knows the justices of the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico argued about pretty much everything else under the sun. Uh, (laughs) There were about 500 pages of opinions in this case, the Sanchez Valle case, that went to the Supreme Court of the United States because it touches on some of these political status issues that are so near and dear to the heart of every Puerto Rican and on which they all have very, very strong views. And so, um, you know, the, they were disagreeing with each other right and left and everything, but I don't recall a disagreement on a point of translation. Now, they, they, the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico concluded that, um, that Puerto Rico could not prosecute, it was a double jeopardy case, so Puerto Rico could not prosecute uh, people who had already been prosecuted by uh, the United States authority. Um, right. and, and so you were, you as representing the petitioner, the government of Puerto Rico, um, you're arguing that um, they are a separate sovereign for du- uh, double jeopardy purposes, such as they should be able to prosecute, which means your opponent was the, the, um, the prosecuted parties, right? The the That's people correct. who were trying not to get prosecuted again. That's correct. So it no, was a, it was a criminal case, and it was involving double jeopardy. And I, I think your question 
kind of points out the fact that in in the Sanchez Valle case, there really are kind of two cases going on or two real things going on. At one level, it is a double jeopardy case, you know, criminal law like you might see anywhere else. But I think at another level, it's really all about or, 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 or it implicates all of these underlying questions of Puerto Rico's political status. And so I think that, you know, that kind of was the, in a sense, the difficult thing to navigate in this case, because I think that, you know, for instance, the reason the Puerto Rico Supreme Court justices got so into it was because they really perceived it as a case going to these broader sovereignty issues. You ended the argument that way, Chris. I mean, you said, you know, to the justices, begging them, you know, don't take the uh, sovereignty of the Puerto Rican people away from them or something to that effect. No, yeah, yeah, don't take the Constitution of Puerto Rico away from the people. Please do not take the Constitution of Puerto Rico away from the people of Puerto Rico. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. And and this kind of goes back to, you know, just for a moment, not not to bore your listeners, but the the, um, double jeopardy clause says, you know, no, no one shall be put in jeopardy twice for the same offense which, you know, you would think would be rather uh, straightforward to apply, but in a system of, um, you know, multiple layers of sovereignty like we have in our country, um, you know, the question started coming up in the 19th century uh, and, and then with a lot more frequency in the 20th century, what does it mean to be the same offense when you have um, laws of, uh, different jurisdictions. You know, I think everybody in law school kind of learns the black letter Blockburger test for what are the same, what are the, you know, the elements of a crime and how does that work for double jeopardy purposes. But there's a kind of a more fundamental question, which is, let's say, put aside Puerto Rico for a second, let's say that you are uh, convicted of a crime uh, under federal law, let's say a, a gun crime, and Maryland wants to go after you for the same crime, you know, is that the same offense? And I said Maryland wants to go after you for the same crime. Obviously, what I meant there is Maryland wants to go after you under Maryland law for the same underlying facts. And there's been a, I don't know if I want to call it an exception, but there's been a gloss on the double jeopardy rule for at least 100 years saying um, that that the laws of different sovereigns are considered to be separate offenses. So, right. again, going back to the language of the clause, it says you shall not be put twice in jeopardy for the same offense, even if a, the same set of conduct is what gives rise to two prosecutions. If one is under the laws, let's say, of the state of Maryland and one is under the laws of the United States, that's not considered the same offense. I think a lot of people have an initial resistance to that idea because it seems to go against, I think, what a lot of people think of as the purpose of the double jeopardy clause to um, not have you know, prevent anybody from having to um, you know, answer twice for the same set of facts. But you know, when you think about it kind of from a federalism point of view, if you have a, any other rule, it would, in a sense, create possibility for mischief where one jurisdiction could basically 
dictate the prosecutorial choices of another jurisdiction. Let's say that you have a state that doesn't take a federal law, is somewhat hostile to a particular federal law. Well, if that state you know, has a similar law and prosecutes you first and imposes a, a you know, five-day suspended sentence where you might have been liable for up to 20 years in prison in federal law, you know, in a sense, they're giving you a get-out-of-jail-free card. And this so, is not hypothetical. I mean, this is in the civil rights era and even wasn't the Rodney King case. And um, I mean, there, there are many instances where correct. where people would people who initial sympathy might at least lie towards the idea that the federal government, by prosecuting for these crimes, is is ameliorating a wrong that was done uh, through an ineffective state prosecution or a sham state prosecution. You're absolutely right. And, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to give the justices some comfort on that. And so. You know, I actually found a case going back somewhere into the 19th century. It's actually from the District of Oregon, of all places, um, where uh, a judge made this very point in saying that a um, it, it would be problematic to allow a state to basically um, preclude a later federal prosecution by, you know, in, in a sense, engaging in a sham prosecution under its own law and then immunizing a person from a potential federal prosecution. I don't think uh, the dual sovereignty um, concept is is actually that all that strange, uh, given that the text in the Constitution is the word offense. I think it would be much harder to maintain if the word in the Constitution were event, um, that's true. Because then you could then you could say, well, it really is about the fact of the matter, not uh, the notion of offense. Really, does pretty directly implicate the existence of a sovereign who's defined it as an offense. Um, so I don't know that I find it all, all that difficult to get to get my mind around. What what I think is, I don't it, know. I don't know. I mean, what if there are two different state? What, take it within a single state. Suppose a state has a couple of different statutes. Which um, which both would apply to a particular instance of behavior, a particular crime. You know, maybe it's a robbery or something like that, and there's an armed robbery statute, but there's also a um, some kind of reckless in, or, or um, knowing endangerment statute, right. and all these carry penalties. You know, normally you got to bring all these at once because once the jury is impaneled, that's when jeopardy attaches. I think, right? Right, but, and as Chris says, there's sort of the Blockberger test for elements and what things merge into what other things as lesser included or or greater embracing offenses. So yeah. you know, I understand all that. That's all within a single sovereign, though. Um, right, and and but so when well, the question I'm, I'm is pushing on your offense event distinction by anyway go, yeah because the offense idea like relies on the idea that it's a different offense when two different sovereigns are applying their law right? yes that, that yeah and, and i and and that seems to me to be um uh, uh, i guess my my main point was simply that you can imagine um constitutional text that made it much harder to maintain the notion that the states and the national government ought to both have an independent sense and therefore opportunity to prosecute something criminally, right? I agree, but you know th- this is has been a somewhat controversial doctrine, really since its inception, and was particularly widely criticized in the late fifties. And there were a series of cases in the Supreme Court in the late fifties that wound up dividing five to four on this issue, and um, you know, since then, it kind of went away and, uh, uh, until really 
Sanchez Valle, I think, was the first time that um, some justices expressed some fundamental conceptual difficulties with the doctrine. And was this Ginsburg yeah, and Thomas in your yes, in concurrence? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it seems pretty clear that what was driving their approach to the whole case in Sanchez Valle really had nothing to do with Puerto Rico, but was just a real discomfort with the whole dual sovereignty doctrine in the first place. I mean, they were pretty explicit about that. And um, so, you know, it, it is possible that um, this issue may may come up yet again. I know there have been a number of cert petitions filed since Sanchez Valle that have really tried to pick up on that concurrence and and say, you know, it's time for the court to reexamine this issue again. So if you're going to use the existing doctrine, you what the what you have to do is interpolate several kind of strong kind of position precedents, you know, several strong results. Uh, one of them is that uh, a state, the states and the federal governments and the federal government are separate. And so a federal offense and a state offense, which cover the same conduct, you can bring both of those. That's not double jeopardy. Correct. Another is that uh, an Indian tribe is not the same as the federal government for these purposes. So you can, they can also bring um, uh, prosecutions when the federal government has broader prosecution for essentially the same set of behaviors. Yeah, correct. But yeah. an, yet another data point. So you think, well, okay, well, that just means anytime there's kind of a separate governmental entity. But then there's this case, and I don't remember the name of it. I'm sure you do, Chris, uh, that suggests that even if a state has given home rule authority to a local town or city, and even if that granting of authority speaks in terms of like authority, or I don't know if they ever speak in terms of sovereignty, but but a very kind of like, you know, um, popular, uh, popular, popular, popular laden kind of, fra- yeah, I don't know how these things, you know, like a charter, which says, you know, we're right. making our own laws, etc. So we, right. very sovereign sounding language. Home like, rule. Yeah, yeah. And, and there, there, um, uh, Jeopardy does attach um, and, and carries through. So if you were and a town state, can't you prosecute, can't, a town can't prosecute. And right. then, and I assume the other way around. If they, yes. And so, so one of the ways that you pointed earlier is 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 um, maybe we, one way to think about this differently is in terms of instead of thinking solely about the double jeopardy clause, think about the supremacy clause. So maybe there should be an ability for the federal government to bring a successive suit to protect its interest in federal law, but not the other way around. And similarly, you know, maybe a local town prosecution shouldn't be shouldn't be able to preclude state prosecution, but maybe the other way around. So you're saying should. it would really matter who went first? Yes, because it's about it's about authority and hierarchy. At least that's right. a possible theory. I don't know if anybody's written about this, but it, it seems another know, way of I understanding. I don't think so. You know, we distinguish the state municipality case on the ground that those municipalities basically dele- they were exercising delegated home rule from the states. So it was still a, an exercise of the, the, the source of that authority that the towns were exercising still came by virtue of the delegation from the state. And on that ground, we also sought to distinguish, let's say, the District of Columbia and, for that matter, the Virgin Islands and American Samoa, all of which have their own self-rule, but all of which... Um, have that self-rule by virtue of a congressional statute. So one can say that the, 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 the laws of the District of Columbia exist by virtue of delegated authority from Congress. Our whole um, argument in 
the Sanchez Valle case was to say Puerto Rico is really a different animal because the, the laws of Puerto Rico do not emanate from delegated authority from Congress. They come from authority vested by the Supreme Court of Puerto by, by the Constitution of Puerto Rico in the government of Puerto Rico and um, Congress um, created a different mechanism. It didn't just delegate the Puerto Rico authority to create its own laws. It delegated, it, it, it invited the people of Puerto Rico to come up with their own constitution, which starts like ours, we the people of Puerto Rico. And so, the, 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 as the Supreme Court has made clear in these cases, the, 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 the issue for this dual sovereignty doctrine, which we've kind of been talking about for the last several minutes, isn't so much, you know, is the other entity, are the two, is the, let's say, the, the, the entity whose sovereign status is being questioned, does it bear the hallmarks of sovereignty that a political scientist might uh, declare to be sovereign? You know, and for instance, in the Indian tribe context, you know, even though the Indian tribes, let's say, have a primeval sovereignty because they were here prior to the arrival of, of the Europeans, and, and um, so, the, you know, their sovereignty does not flow from Congress, um, they're still under a very large degree of congressional control. And so some of the courts had held in the 70s, some of the lower courts, that therefore they were not separate sovereigns for double jeopardy purposes. And the Supreme Court rejected that, saying, you're thinking about sovereignty the wrong way. What we mean in this double jeopardy context is not your typical political science professor sovereignty. It's a very unique thing that goes to the source of the laws. So our basic point was to say Puerto Rican law um, should should um, uh, be considered to be distinct from federal law for for uh, double jeopardy purposes because it comes from authority granted by the people of Puerto Rico to their own governing institutions, uh, just like. Let's say the laws of Maryland come from the authority of the people of Maryland that is vested in in the you know the, the, the Maryland legislature, which writes the criminal laws of Maryland and and the Maryland enforcement authorities who enforce it. You know, I found the I found your argument in that respect um, very very compelling. Obviously, it didn't carry the day, but and and it did seem like Justice Kagan, um, who questioned you the most about it, really did seem to be wrestling with it and and trying to give it as uh, as much weight as she could in as the way she was sort of weaving things together but but the reason that I that I find it important as an argument is because it really does look at this unique constitutional moment for Puerto Rico in the early 1950s right. and it is different than you know a, a territory it's it's also different from states that uh, got together and created the United States. The thing it strikes me that it's the least different from is states that were created out of territories of the United States and admitted as states. They yeah. don't pre-exist the union. They join the union later. Why do they have a sovereignty that Puerto Rico does not have? Of course, the and argument, I think that's the, a very the, hard question to answer. Obviously, it is. And the, the argument that, that she gives and, and was hinted at in oral argument, too, I think, was that you kind of bootstrap from the equal footing doctrine. 
like the equal footing doctrine like trans- translates them like translates their like their their kind of given authority into an uh, into a pre-existing authority because pre-existing authority yeah. is something that the other states had the original 13 states had so it, i don't know it, it all of these are, I, and, I and like, it's anytime you square a circle right there's a little bit of stuff left over because there's an yeah. incommensurability there so right. i get it i mean right. that's certainly an argument to make i don't to me, it doesn't quite work. Well, here's what – so I want to suggest something because uh, about like maybe we should go back and, and trace the history of Puerto Rico just a little bit so we can understand this. That 1950 yeah, that moment 1950 and how did we get there. And, for a yeah. particular reason and then what's happened after. Um, but it does seem like – so you know, we start with double jeopardy, which appears to turn on like what's uh, – you know, who's sovereign. Like so we, we kind of trans- – I'm using the word translate a lot. But we, we're replacing the word sovereignty because who wants to ask like what is sovereignty? It seems like a philosophical right. question, much less a right. political science one, right? And so we, we replace one mirage, the mirage of sovereignty, with a different mirage, <laughs> the ultimate source of the law, the ultimate authority for the law, right? right. And I'm not sure that's actually any easier to answer. <laughs> Right. Because, you know, in other words, is it doing any analytical work to make that shift? I think you end up arguing about basically the same thing. Well, it can if you if you if you talk about source in in the most concrete way possible. Right. Which is you look at acts that people undertake, acts that people commit. So you've got Congress saying to Puerto Rico, please write this constitution. Right. And then please send it back and we'll look at it and decide whether it's sufficient. Right. Right. Um, And so you you look at the actual behaviors people do. And if you talk about source that way, then I don't think you're quite drifting off into the netherworld reaches. And I think the home rule cases might have to come out the other way. I mean, you know, you just you can I I, I get the argument. I'm sympathetic to the to the argument that Chris made. Um, I think it is the most like acceptable in terms of understanding the current political situation and that may be the most acceptable way of understanding this doctrine at least under the normal science version of it that we're it, trying it also to, is know. an argument that doesn't spill over into the marianas islands or american samoa or any of these other places because they're just not structured that way right so if that is the ground on which you make this conclusion you know it's not going to apply to anyone else yeah until you're ready to marshal a, a different argument yeah. about it so maybe we should understand how how World War II and the United Nations figure, fig, figure <laughs> right, So how did we get in the situation well where Puerto Rico... And so here's what blew my mind. when I So I'm going to link a paper that I read, and I don't have the name in front of me. Uh, I think it's Empire Forgotten. It's a 1997 article that does a really good job of kind of tracing the history of Puerto Rico up to that point. And mm. I kind of looked at a few pages of that to get a, a sense of uh, trying to, you know, replace, you know, fill up the, the holes that exist in my education about it. But one thing that's amazing to me, right, is, of course, you know, any history of Puerto Rico that, that, that you read any popular history is you're going to say before Columbus, you know, there were native inhabitants. And that whole history is like glossed over. So whatever right. they were doing then and whatever the rule of law was like that, and like, you know, we don't even consider that. But Christopher Columbus gets there and in 1493. And from then and to, uh, uh, for 400 years, there's Spanish rule. And right. and then that is also somewhat glossed over in the histories that we read because it doesn't seem as as relevant to understanding American legal treatment. But but that just that was kind of astounding to me that that four hundred years is compressed into such a short you know in, into such a short part of this conversation. And four hundred you know the United States hasn't lasted four hundred years. Um, right. And and you know God knows we may not last four hundred years <laughs> at, the, at the rate that we're going. But it's just it's an astounding length of time yeah. uh, for a for a system of law and a system of government to exist. And, and, and it, and it obviously, you know, one way that it's left its legacy is in, in the civil law system uh, that exists there. And in the, and the whole 
Hispanic culture. I mean, I think, you know, frankly, this gets back to this question of Puerto Rico's identity and where it fits in the American political system. And in a sense, it's future. I mean, in many ways, Puerto Rico has a very distinctive culture from the rest of the United States. It's a very different kind of territory than the other kinds of territories that we traditionally have had in our history. I mean, this is why, you know, I think it might make sense to talk a little bit about the history because, you know, the 1890s marked such a break with you know, what American history had been up to that point, which was kind of the story of westward expansion, starting with the, you know, the Northwest Ordinance and all that. And essentially those were, um, you know, a, a situation where the lands that the territories that were uh, at issue were basically populated either by the Native Americans or by the, the settlers pushing westward. Um, but suddenly in the 1890s with the Spanish-American War, that was the first time in our history that we started to look to have something that looked like an empire. We had um, lands that were uh, had very advanced and existing, you know, civilizations and cultures on them that were very different than our own in terms of language, in terms of, of um, legal systems. So everything you're saying is exactly true, and and you know I think that's the whole backdrop in a sense for all of these kind of status discussions that that we're having and that, frankly, people in Puerto Rico continue to have very, um, you know, vehement disagreements. I've I've been to Puerto Rico several times, but I had never appreciated the extent to which politics in Puerto Rico is completely dominated by this, what they call the status issue, which is their relationship with the United States. And here in the States, we have Democrats and Republicans. In Puerto Rico, they have Commonwealth people and statehood people. There is, to some extent, a lesser group of independence um, people, but that's never gotten more than about 5% or so in, in any election. So the, the big divide in Puerto Rico is those who want to try to become a state and join the union like the rest of the, the, the states, and those who think that that's not a uh, desirable or, or, frankly, feasible path for Puerto Rico, given its very distinctive culture and history, and want something um, in between, let's say, colonial status with direct rule by Washington on the one hand, um, and you know, complete independence on the other hand, and that's what the Commonwealth. Uh, essentially is. You, you know, before before we kind of continue with the timeline and we can talk about the military government and the, Fork, uh, the Forker Act and everything before we get to 1950. Um, so I do want to go through that because I think it really helps understand your position in this case and, and why it's such an important case. But on this point of of the distinctiveness of Puerto Rico, which, you know, jumping ahead is one of the reasons like under the maybe the UN definition, you might think self-determination is required, right? They're, they're kind of a... Uh, um, a a defined group of people with a culture, but without self-determination, right? That was one of the elements that pushed toward trying to recognize, trying to have it both ways by the United States. Right. But, but, um, but is that, so that's maybe true now, you know, it feels different even than say, you know, um, 
U.S. culture and maybe I don't even know what Hawaiian culture was like before it became a state. But um, so, so maybe it is really distinct, you know, with language and everything else. But was that, you know, was was the culture in Vermont and the culture in um, in South Carolina, were those before the um, at the time of the um, signing of the Declaration of Independence, were those or the timing uh, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, were those cultures as less distinct? I know there was a common language, but I just don't know. I, do you know what I'm getting at? I, I'm just wondering if this argument of distinctiveness is, you know, is really an argument against statehood um, and whether this is something which is, you know, because we, we're familiar, at least I've grown up in the time I've grown up, there have always been the 50 states. And so I just think of them as the 50 states. But, but you know, this question of whether to add another territory as a state is, is uh, maybe, maybe it's always a question of, of distinctiveness. And, and maybe, maybe, I don't know, I'm kind of... I'm blabbering a lot. Today. Well, it does sound it does well, sound yeah, like there are a bunch of people it's a in fair question to ask. I mean, I think you know what the, one can certainly argue. I mean, it's a continuing conversation we as Americans really probably have always had and will always have is what does it really mean to be American and what are the kind of core characteristics that unite us? And you know, I think the language is one thing, but certainly we've always been a, a kind of nation of, um, you know, it, it's, it's not like a one size fits all thing. And I think right. you're right. I mean, people in, in Vermont are very different in many respects, philosophically, um, you know, economic, social views, political views from people in Texas. I mean, that's just, and that's true today, of, much less at the time, you know, 200 years ago. Well, I'm sure they were strong. I mean, look at the, the you know, the, the, there were the slave states versus the free states. And, you know, they, 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 we've always had, you know, great diversity within our country. I think that's kind of our, you know, it's the whole e pluribus unum thing that uh, I don't think anybody has ever said that, you know, the pluribus has to go away or is a bad thing. I think the question is, you know, how far away, you know, how many deviations from the norm can you have and still consider yourself a cohesive country? I mean, this is, I think, a debate that, you know, never can, will go away. I mean, look what's happening now in Spain with Catalonia and, you know, lots of countries, I think, have to decide what it means to be a person of that country and what it means to be kind of, you know, outside that country. And if we think about Europe, I mean, a lot of people now are thinking of sovereignty in terms other than this binary Right. And what kinds of associations can we have that preserve our distinctive culture and yet achieve the benefits of of peace and stability and trade in both directions, like subsidiarity down and then connecting up with, I mean, things like Brexit and devolution to Scotland and Wales within the UK. I mean, it goes in both directions. Right. Yeah. So uh, so the so people in Puerto Rico could be thinking about the relationship between the United States. There could there could be questions about how. uh, Puerto Rico relates to uh, political subdivisions within the island of Puerto Rico. So, but but back to the main you, your perception, Chris, that the main uh, a main and important dividing line within politics in Puerto Rico is on this Commonwealth versus statehood uh, dimension. What is the? It sounds like the main argument for Commonwealth status is the ability to preserve a more distinctive culture. Correct, and you know th- there are also some some um, 
ramifications of statehood that would be, I think, quite hard to swallow, like the they would be subject then to the income tax. I mean, there there is a certain uniformity that is going to be required if you uh, become one of the states. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico, uh, you know, their economic situation is not nearly where and never has been anywhere near any of the 50 um, of the other 50 of the 50 states. Um, I think they would be the poorest state in, in per capita. And I think by all other measures by far, I mean, they're, they're well below Mississippi or some of the other states that traditionally have been kind of on the, the, the poorer end. Um, and I think, you know, People have certainly said that that would be a disaster to say that now they're suddenly subject to the, 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 the kind of uniform application of federal law that has to be applied to to the states, including, I think, probably first and foremost, the federal income tax, huh. uh, which right now they, they do not pay federal income taxes. They pay Puerto Rico income tax. Uh, well, in the tradition of giving uh, of the show and getting at everything rather elliptically, uh, but, but hopefully well. Uh, can I just circle back to the history for just one second? And, sure. and just m- maybe I just want to highlight like three data points and you tell me whether this is a sufficient, like a sufficient understanding for at least to advance the ball and have some understanding of why the sovereignty issue is so mixed up. So my understanding is that after the Spanish American war, there's basically a military government set up, um, which, a- a- and you know, where there are basically no rights, it's like a conquered people. And there was what there was for a few years, but very quickly you get the Forker Act in 1900. And, and that establishes a civilian colonial government very much in the mold of like European colonial governments uh, where the the head of the of the colony is appointed by the president of the United States, um, including uh, and, and other officers as well, including the justice of the Supreme Court. Um, and then you kind of quickly between 1900 and 1917, when we get the Jones Act, which has been in the news lately, it did an, yep. a number of things, in, including this um, kind of problematic treatment as far as shipping goes, but it, yep. a number of other things. But between then, you get these the insular cases in the Supreme Court. Yep. And these decide, among many other things, that people in these territories, including Puerto Rico, don't get constitutional rights. They only get fundam- the kind of fundamental constitutional rights, not all of the constitutional rights. And so they aren't full citizens, even in a constitutional um, in, in a constitutional law sense. I, is that is that too broad? You know what I mean? No, I think that that's a fair characterization. And, you know, it's amazing to think that in their day, the insular cases were hugely controversial and important. And, you know, I would say that they were kind of maybe the Roe versus Wade of their day in mm-hmm. the sense that presidents were, you know, Kind of talking about litmus tests for Supreme Court justices based on their views of the insular cases, and this was there was a whole debate about whether the Constitution follows the flag. It, as I kind of alluded to before, this was the first time, and all of a sudden, the United States had these territories with you know, pretty developed um, societies there that looked very different than our societies. I mean, the main ones being. The Philippine Islands and and Puerto Rico. Cuba got put on a path to independence almost immediately and was independent by in the first few years of the of the twentieth century. But but the Philippines and Puerto Rico, um, you know, were you know had um, you know their own 
societies and um, you know there were questions about does the right to a jury trial uh, apply in Puerto Rico and the uh, and the Philippines and the, the, the insular cases kind of came up with this distinction between two kinds of territories the the incorporated territories and the unincorporated territories this was all right. kind of you know, it was kind of made up by the Supreme Court at the time to distinguish basically, <laughs> you know, the let's say the Wyomings of the world from exactly. the Philippines of the world. Right. And to say, you know, the Constitution does apply there, but not necessarily in every jot and tittle, which basically allowed the Supreme Court to decide on a provision by provision basis which provisions of the Constitution might apply and how local customs uh, and, and whatnot might require a somewhat different interpretation of the Constitution. The, this is the sense in which, for me, it's disappointing that that Sanchez Valle, in a way, is is reaching back to the insular cases uh, by by making a distinction between the things that become U.S. states by this particular procedure mm-hmm. and and the 1952 Constitution for Puerto Rico that to treat them differently. Rather than say, and and I think Chris, the phrase you used at oral argument, which to me was the was the the most memorable moment when you when you said, you know, Congress shouldn't be the slave of its authority here; it should be the master of its authority here. Yeah, I thought it was that a Congress moment. should be able yeah. to say, um, we want to set up a situation for Puerto Rico that lets Puerto Rico engage in a degree of self determination that puts them on a par with, if not identical to, but at least on an important par with the the states that joined the Union many years after the creation of the United States. This arrangement was not something that Puerto Rico did as a rogue usurpation of authority. This was pursuant to the invitation of Congress and with the blessing of Congress. That was submitted to the Congress. The Congress saw but even that. Even in line. saying that, Mr. Landau, yep. you're putting Congress in the driver's seat here. It was done at the invitation of Congress. Congress approved it. Presumably Congress can unapprove it if Congress ever wished to. So if Congress is in the driver's seat, why isn't Congress the source of authority for the purposes of our double jeopardy jurisprudence, which seems to make that the issue? I mean, you could imagine a different double jeopardy jurisprudence where the issue was who just exercises authority in the real world. But that seems not to be what we ask. That's, that's correct. That's correct. And I think that the, the key point that I would like to make, Your Honor, is that you have to look at — Congress has plenary authority over the territories under the Territorial Clause. Our position is that Congress is not the prisoner of its plenary authority. It is the master of its plenary authority. And therefore, when Congress can decide that for the long-term future of Puerto Rico, it does not think that it is appropriate or good for for Puerto Rico or the United States to have direct or delegated federal power in Puerto Rico. It says we accede to the the request of the Puerto Rican people to create their own government and to be the source of authority of their own law. So that's what Congress invites. The people of Puerto Rico accept the invitation. They enact a constitution that is entirely explicit, saying the political power of the Commonwealth creates the structure, creates a legislative authority, vests the courts of Puerto Rico with judicial authority. Let, let's call this, this theory of yours interim sovereignty. Yep, yep. Let's just finish the, just yep. the timeline for a second. But so let's get to the — you want to get to the Jones yep. Act, 1917 Jones yeah, so Act? 19- which, yeah, go ahead. I think you, what you said was was correct, although I think, you, you know, you, you may not give us enough credit that I think — I mean, by us, I mean the United States. We, we did set up already some — 
elements of local self-government. The, 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 the lower house of the, the, the Puerto Rican legislature was elected from the get-go, even under the, the Foraker Act. Okay. Um, the Jones Act expanded, um, which is 1917, so this is kind of World War One. you know, more like we're the, you know, the defending democracy, and, um, you know, there was a view that we should be giving more self-government to, to our own territories, and um, so that allowed, I think it changed the setup for the election of the Senate, and, and now the people of Puerto Rico elected the their Senate, as well as their lower house, the governor was still appointed by uh, the, the president. Um, but so the four and, and the, the Jones Act in 1917 also made Puerto Ricans American citizens. Their, their right. kind of citizenship status had been a very uh, open question. They were not surprisingly somewhat unhappy about that, that situation. So that gave them United States citizenship. Um, and, 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 I, and I understand that it also... Because there's still this question of what rights do you have in Puerto Rico, and I understand that the that the statute created kind of a bill of rights and gave due process and equal protection rights as a statutory matter in Puerto Rico. Yes. Do I have that right? You do indeed. Yes, okay. that's exactly right. So, um, you know, a lot of these things, like the, for instance, double jeopardy was uh, given as a statutory matter. In a sense, that somewhat mooted some of these questions about whether the constitution follows the flag of its own right, because, you know, in a sense, the United States gave these, these rights then as, um, as, um, as statutory rights. Right. Um, but then, you know, that you kind of go along, the second world war comes along, um, you know, a- after that, it's kind of, you know, very anti-colonial, um, Forces, you know, the British Empire starts to um, disintegrate, and uh, the United States in 1947 gives Puerto Ricans the uh, authority to elect their governor, which was the first time that um, that, that there was ever the the um, popular uh, election of a governor in the territories. Now, now about this period, Chris, I, I was also reading, and it struck me that that the United States became increasingly of of, well, I don't know if they have two minds. That may give them too much credit. But that Puerto Rico was was having was taking on a more and more important like military and strategic um, uh, place right in the Caribbean. And there was I found this one quote from this one representative who said that that they wanted Puerto Rico to help us make the Gulf of Mexico an American lake. Um, <laughs> you, you know, this like it's it's, it's it's in a very strategic place. I guess in the Caribbean, it can be used as a as a base and a port, and so it was very important. Also, very close to the you know, it, it gives us a place close to the Panama Canal. I guess is what they were saying. I don't know how close it is. What but era is that quotation from? This is from uh, I think this is bef- I see. I don't have that down. It was a representative from Wisconsin. So it's some I think sometime in the 30s or or, or huh. early 40s. I'm not sure. And then before we get to the grant in uh, 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 of. Uh, to Puerto Rico of the right to select its own governor. Uh, my understanding is in the 1943, the Puerto Rican legislature itself demanded to end the colonial government based on the Atlantic Charter, you know, the 1941 Atlantic Charter that um, the Allied powers, you know, um, entered. So that there was, it, that this whole feeling, this this post-World War II feeling, which started, you know, during World War II of right. of kind of freeing people to uh, to, self, to self-determine, um, was seized by the Puerto Rican legislature to say, "Hey, how how about us? This seems like a great idea." And and so you start to get this uh, 
this tension that plays out in the late 40s and, and 50s, culminating in the compact, but then really the compact kick, kicks off a right. whole series of plebiscites and non-binding plebiscites and a constant back and forth. But, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. But one thing that was very interesting to me that I um, discovered in kind of looking at uh, the, the, the history going back even into the 30s, you know, the, the, the Philippines and Puerto Rico were both offered independence in the 30s. There were bills introduced in Congress to let both of them go, because I think we can't really appreciate how controversial the American empire was in its day. Um, that, that's why you know, there was a lot of people who thought that, that you know, there should be no kind of second-class territories, right. and that, that the United States had no business following the European model of having colonies in far-flung parts of the world. And, um, you know, the, 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 this was far from something that was, you know, a consensus view in the United States. And again, it's just, it's hard to understand now what a hot-button political issue this was in its day between the imperialists and the anti-imperialists within the United States, a lot of people said, look, we're a democratic republic. We should not have these colonies. And we have an and, experience with uh, with colonials. And it, <laughs> right. yes. and it runs yes. in the other direction. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and, you know, so I think that, that the kind of the 1890s and the Spanish-American War and the annexation of Hawaii marked the high watermark, in a sense, of the American imperial kind of colonial um, you know, movement, but, you know, which I think was partly a result of self-interest, partly a result of kind of uh, the, the belief at that time that we had a moral obligation to spread our enlightened cultures around the world. I mean, you know, I think you can look at this through a lot of different lenses, but for wh whatever its reasons, you know, that, that had its high watermark. But then I think by the 30s, at least, a lot of people were saying, what on earth are we doing with these millions of people in the Philippines and, and, and Puerto Rico that, you know, we don't see that these are likely to become states, and so we should offer them independence. Anti-colonialization gets embedded. Like, so there's this big move, basically worldwide, but especially in the United States. And, and after the World War, the idea of preventing aggressive colonialization becomes the norm and it's mm -hmm. embedded in in the UN charter Correct. and uh and, and under this I, as i understand and I, i'm not sure exactly of the timeline between this and the and the 1950 congressional act and the 1952 um uh, uh puerto rican constitution but but puerto rico is initially classified under the UN charter as a non-self-governing territory Correct. which requires the United States to report on economic and social conditions of its non-self-governing holding. And Correct. that's, I think, embarrassing and problematic for the United States. And so I, I, I assume that it's not too long after that fact that the United States passes this statute, which is in the form of a compact. And, and exactly what form this takes, this kind of congressional uh, authorization to develop a constitution, and then in, in 1952, the acceptance of this Puerto Rican constitution like the, the the nature of that back and forth is like the key to this whole case, right? I think that's a very important part of it. Yeah, and just so so the United States, just to, to, to finish the point you were making, did in fact submit reports in the late '40s to the United Nations in terms of what steps it was taking to achieve um, local self determination in the non self governing uh, territories. 
And so it was it was including Puerto Rico in those reports at that time. And um, then, you know, you're absolutely right. I think that probably contributed certainly to the, this seminal law, public law 600 in 1950, that basically offered the people of Puerto Rico in the nature of a compact. And again, that's an interesting term, an interesting way to look at the issue. We're not saying, you know, we're imposing uh, something on you or requiring you. We're saying we're offering you kind of in the nature of a contract, which kind of somewhat you know, assumes that you have two parties of right. Uh, you know, kind of equal dignity to enter into a compact. Yeah, I mean, they don't want to use the word treaty, which right, would right. clearly push this on, like, you know, because the admission of new states could be seen in the nature of a treaty, even though it's But it's funny, the, 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 the constitutional word for agreements between two United States states is a compact. compact. Right. Yes. right. So, so, it's, it's, so it's using the language of, of it as not a state, but almost a state. And this is why we started the conversation. Like, it's almost like we want to have it both ways. Right. We want them to be independent for purposes of international, you know, um, repute. So right? that we're not a colonial power. Right. We don't want to, we don't want to see our, and there's something like not only about the law, but just the way we want to see ourselves. We don't want to right. see ourselves as a colonial power, right? Rather as a beneficent, friendly <laughs> friend. <laughs> right. 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 And, and, you know, in, in fairness, that's, I think, what the majority of the people of Puerto Rico decided that they wanted to because they came up with this constitution that um, created what we call in English the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. In Spanish, it's a little different. It's Estado Libre Asociado de Puerto Rico, which is the um, free associated state of Puerto Rico. There's no Spanish analog for the word commonwealth. And I think for you know various reasons, they they didn't want to call it a state. They didn't like that. But it's interesting that the, what we call today the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, in Spanish, to so the people of Puerto Rico, is translated as the Free Associated State of Puerto Rico. Right. Um, so you know what they were trying to do was really come up with a very novel solution within the American political family and the American political context. Something that's had never been done before, which was to have a territory become self-governing, but not really on a path to statehood. This was not the Utah Territory. Right? Right. This was a territory that was basically meant to be autonomous, but still part of the United States. And, you know, the, 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 so the people of Puerto Rico, just to close out the history, Congress offered them this compact. They, they they um, came up with a, they, they had a constitutional convention. They, they, well, first of all, they voted for a constitutional convention, then the constitutional convention drafted a constitution. The people endorsed that constitution. It got sent to Washington. It was approved by the president and Congress with a few changes, and then sent back to Puerto Rico where it was accepted. And, and so that created the government of Puerto Rico as a creature of the constitution of Puerto Rico, which was adopted by the people of Puerto Rico, um, you know, to be sure at the invitation of Congress, but nonetheless, it was not a, it, it was, it was a constitution created as it says on its face by virtue of the power of the people of Puerto Rico who came up with this constitutional convention. And as I think was, was pointed out earlier, that is not that different in a way from the way that a lot of the states wound up passing 
their own uh, enacting their own constitutions, um, which, which form the basis for their admission to the union. I mean, let's say you take Nebraska or New Mexico. I mean, those they were territories. They they came up with a draft constitution. It was submitted to Congress. Congress had to approve it before it would become a state. And that was one of the things that we relied on to kind of loop back to the double jeopardy issue to say, wait a second, you know, the, the, the laws of Puerto Rico come from the, the government that was set up by the Constitution of Puerto Rico, the source of which is the people of Puerto Rico. And where we lost the case in the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court said, no, that's not good enough. It's got to be the ultimate source of authority. So, you know, that word ultimate had appeared in one of the precedents, although in most of the precedents, it was just talked about as the source of authority. But for whatever reason, the Supreme Court in this case said, you know, that the, the key question is, what is the ultimate source of authority? And, you know, we couldn't deny that it was ultimately Congress that authorized the people of Puerto Rico um, you know, to offer them this deal and, and had to approve the Constitution. So once you started to look at the double jeopardy issue as governed by the ultimate source of authority issue, I think, you know, that that really gave the court its its leg to stand on to come out the other way. But, you know, I think that raised some issues, as I pointed out earlier. This is pretty similar to the way that most states got into the union. And the only way the, gov the, 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 the court got around that was by this footnote four saying, well, you know, the New Mexico's and the Nebraska's of the world, even though their constitutions were also vetted by Congress and changed in some instances, you know, the, the equal footing doctrine is a legal fiction that says that they come into the union on the same footing as the original 13 colonies. So they also have the same primeval sovereignty, and that's why they are the same as the original 13 colonies. I just have to break yeah. in because not all of the original 13 colonies uh, came in with pre-existing authority because some of them voluntarily left the Union and were only readmitted after they ratified the Civil War amendments and were readmitted just like the territories were otherwise. Well, that's an interesting, that's a, that's a good, I never thought of that point, but I suppose they would still answer, yeah, but whatever, the time they were readmitted. <laughs> yeah. like, isn't, the truth that, isn't the truth that they were deemed never to have left, is that it? was always declared illegal? I, I'm not even sure. Like, now you're going beyond. Yeah, there's sort of a Lincoln point about the, uh, you know, the the inability for the union to dissolve in, in, in some fundamental sense. But, but ratifying the amendments was a was a condition of acceptance of, and, and I think Indeed, their Indeed, and not particularly voluntarily, depending on which state we're talking about. <laughs> so, of course, I mean, of course not. I mean, but, yeah. but so here's a, just to change gears, because we, we've had a lot of your time, and I know we won't have unlimited amounts of your time, Chris. I'm dying to ask, how on earth do you get ready for an oral argument like this? Because unlike... Even even very complicated case like the bankruptcy case that you argued for Puerto Rico. I mean, that's that had a lot of complexity to it as well. But it just seems like normally to prepare for a Supreme Court case, you don't need to learn a century of history about colonialism and all these other structures of government and this strange relationship, a unique relationship at least. No, maybe you just have to learn um, Arissa. <laughs> right, which is which is really complicated. But exactly. this is this is just you know, crazy honestly, complicated. Me, this was a joy. Um, I was an American history major in college, and I actually minored in Latin American studies. So it, this was kind of such a tailor-made case for me that 
it, you know, this was a pure, a pure joy. I mean, I really got into the history. I mean, it made it really interesting. And, and it, this is frankly, to me, was a lot less complicated than huh. trying to deal with some of these statutory cases with the gazillion cross references and Roman at C4. I mean, right. I, I don't think anybody really ever disagreed about the history. It was really more about what are the implications from that history. And, and, and really, I think, you know, the, the point I really wanted to get across and the, the point that I think, you know, when I go into an oral argument, I always try to think of, you know, what are the three or four most important points here? And, you know, you need to be prepared to get into a lot of that stuff. But frankly, a lot of times for oral argument, it can be a burden to have too much stuff floating around your head. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, 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 you know, our basic point was really not that complicated here, which is, you know, let's go back to this is a double jeopardy case. So we're deciding, you know, is the, is the, the laws of Puerto Rico, you know, this, these particular individuals here were charged with gun crimes under the laws of Puerto Rico and separately under the laws of the United States. They cop pleas under the laws of the United States and then tried to to um, use double jeopardy to say, well, we can't be prosecuted under the laws of Puerto Rico. And, and our basic point was, look, the laws of Puerto Rico, the, 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 the dual sovereignty doctrine, in a sense, is a it, it shows the danger of words, right? Because whenever right. you talk about sovereignty, it gets everybody all excited. <laughs> Um, and, but the truth is it could just as well be called like the separate source of authority doctrine, which is really what it is. And I think Justice Kagan, you know, to her credit, goes out of her way in the opinion to say, look, when we're talking about dual sovereignty here, we're talking about a very narrow, historical, distinctive doctrine. We are not making comments on Puerto Rican sovereignty writ large and on the status of Puerto Rico in the United States. So the Supreme Court opinion really says this is a double jeopardy only opinion and don't go and make broad statements um, about how this affects the overall U.S.-Puerto Rican relationship. And this is what I was trying to say at the beginning. Like, you know, this is really a case on two levels. At one level, it's a criminal case, and that's the level on which it was briefed and, and, and decided but, you know, there's also a level, particularly the level which is perceived in Puerto Rico, since there, you know, it is such a, an obsession there to, 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 to you know, um, think about everything through the lens of the status issue between the Commonwealth people and the statehood people that, you know, we had lots of uh, amicus briefs filed by uh, people, you know, um, on the other side, the statehood people who want nothing more than to say that the Commonwealth is all fiction. And basically, unless it's a state, there's no middle ground. Puerto mm. Rico has to be a colony. Right. And our basic submission was that, um, no, the Constitution, and particularly the Territorial Clause, is, as you said earlier, uh, you know, it, it, it means that Congress has, it's an affirmative grant of power to Congress. Curiously, it's in Article 4, it's not in Article One. Mm -hmm. It's in Article, Article Four, Section Three. But it says, you know, the Congress shall have the power, um, you know, to to enact rules and regulations for 
and government territory and property in the United States. So it's kind of a weird thing that the, the framers didn't really give it a lot of treatment. I mean, Art- basically... Yeah, Article 4 is know, where they kind of put all of the like resolution of potential conflicts of powers, I think. You yeah. Know, and, and so it's like, okay, Article 1, legislative powers, Article 2, executive powers, Article 3, judicial powers, but, you know... And Article Four, let's clean up the mess in a way. Right? Yeah, but it's where the supremacy clause article, is, right? The, yeah, the, the territorial clause starts. The Congress shall. It starts very much like an Article One thing, right? It says the Congress shall have the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. So literally, it puts like the territory in the same category as like a chair that belongs to the Department of the Interior, right? <laughs> right. Like a piece of property. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all that it that it says on the subject. And you know, the 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 the, the, the view I think of the um majority of, of justices on the Puerto Rico Supreme Court when they ruled against us is against the state in this case was to say, look, notwithstanding all this commonwealth um stuff in the constitution. Puerto Rico remains subject to plenary congressional control under the territorial clause, and therefore um, all the laws of Puerto Rico necessarily, um, you know, are are kind of subject to congressional control. That that's their that's their mantra. How controversial was it in Puerto Rico that the Puerto Rico Supreme Court reached that that conclusion on that ground? It was controversial in the way that this status issue is always controversial in Puerto mm. Rico. And the the, the, the the justices down there split exactly down the lines of the, the, the justices appointed by statehood governors mm. versus the justices appointed by commonwealth governors. <laughs> and, um, and, and this, again, it took me a while to get my head around the, the, the kind of Puerto Rican political angle that, you know, it, it the, 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 the statehood people, and you know, I'm not questioning the, the sincerity of their belief, that they really believe that statehood is the only answer, that the Commonwealth is a charade, and that you either, that, that, that there is no kind of middle ground here, that mm-hmm. the only way that Puerto Rico is not a colony is to be a state. And the Commonwealth people, their whole thing is, no, we don't want to be a state. We, we, we enjoy kind of the best of both worlds. We can basically have um, our autonomous self-government um, within the American family uh, without kind of having to fit into the straitjacket of uniformity that would be uh, inherent in statehood. And, you know, that, that has been the defining political um, uh, debate in Puerto Rico since the creation of the Commonwealth. But the, the, the interesting thing is, it was not until 2009, I believe, maybe 2010, so shortly before this decision came out, that the statehood justices for the first time in their history, in Puerto Rico's history, got a majority on the Puerto Rico Supreme Court. Hmm. They Ever since the creation of the Commonwealth, there had been a majority of Commonwealth um, justices. And... So th- there was actually a decision from the Puerto Rico Supreme Court going the other way on this very issue, and the that was overruled by the Puerto Rico Supreme Court. So, you know, to somebody who doesn't really understand this through the lens of, of Puerto Rican politics, it, it took a while to understand why 
Puerto Ricans would be basically saying so vehemently that, you know, we're not a separate sovereign. We're the same sovereign. But once you kind of understand the, the lens through which, you know, the, the, the people of the kind of the, the statehood view, view the current status of Puerto Rico, it, you know, it, 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 it's hard to grasp why they would want to, to, you know, why they would view it that way. So I want to I want to say what I think at this point. Is that okay, Joe? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised to hear you haven't been doing that all along. But the, uh, what, what, well, so what do you think? There's so much to like get your head around. Cause, so first of all, I don't think this guy should have been prosecuted again. You don't I think mean, what? I don't think this guy should have been prosecuted again. I mean, that's my kind of substantive take on like, but given that the double jeopardy clause. Well, can I stop you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, to, just to say, when you say prosecuted again, I mean, just the facts of this case are actually kind of interesting because this, both the guys, there were two guys in this case. They were actually both prosecuted originally by the Puerto Rican prosecutors. The Puerto Rican prosecutors had the first bite of the apple. While the Puerto Rican prosecutions were pending, the feds came in and and basically got right. plea agreements yeah. very quickly. Huh. So just, I mean, so it does I'm seem sure to, that it, changes. It, no, no, well, I mean, you know, it might. I mean, it does set up that 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 kind of dynamic we talked about earlier in the show, right, where you have one sovereign who is kind of um, – preempting the other in a way that that hurts the policy of the other right and and i think that yeah. was the views of the puerto rican prosecutors right. you know, again i think they've tried to work out a modus vivendi with the the federal prosecutors there uh, you know just not to waste resources and i think you know for whatever reason that broke down here and the, the these guys got very light sentences uh under the federal um uh, uh laws and the Puerto Ricans were ticked. I think they were. They said, "Look, we were prosecuting these guys. You came along and messed it up." And so, again, I, I'm not. Yeah. Look, put it this way: a lot <laughs> of people have your instinct that it just seems wrong. I mean, if, I think any of us can imagine. It's just a revulsion. Yeah, just a revulsion against kind of yes. t- twice being prosecuted. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I was just gonna. So, but I think you should have won this case. And I and I agree with Breyer's opinion. I think it's a it's a of the two kind of pragmatic efforts to resolve the case. I prefer Breyer's pragmatic way. But my ultimate thought on this is just as a conceptual theoretical matter. Um, once you identify double jeopardy with identifying sovereigns or sources of authority, and whether those whether one helps you, I'm not so convinced. But once you do that. I think the trouble that you run into, the ambiguity you run into as a modern analyst, legal analyst, is that we have successfully dis- disassociated authority from at least a p- kind of possible use of violence, right? A- and so, so now authority comes to mean something very um, – something where, where you can always define – um, a relation between, say, two entities is one as either hierarchical or not, depending on how you frame it up and characterize it. And I think that certainly we can see that in this case. I mean, the the nature of that compact can be seen in several ways. Like, is are all um, Puerto Rican laws essentially at the pleasure of the U.S. Congress? Like, is it revocable? And one way you can frame it up is no. This is as a compact between two separate entities, but you can also frame it the other way. Whereas maybe historically, like. What what defines a sovereign is this kind of ultimate authority backed by a threat of violence. This is very Austinian in a way, right? I mean, but right. but it, it seems so much closer to the surface. Like, and you can even in the history of Puerto Rico, you see it, right? You see this right. military conquest, right, as what gives this authority. And but these days, you know, with the 
basically, you know, this is the Shapiro and Hathaway book, right? The, 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 the outlawing of war, right? And, and in, the, in the modern mind, right, this is, conquest is, is just plain illegal. Uh, and so the idea that you would have this dependent status backed by force of threat, like, it doesn't seem to us, right, that the ultimate, like, if you look at what, what is in the reserve account of the United States that could enforce its will, we don't think military conquest of Puerto Rico is ultimately backing up congressional authority there, right? Which is why I think that Justice Kagan, I mean, as majority opinions go, I I think hers in this case reads with a level of regret (laughs) and and real concern um, that they don't usually have. I mean, just by way of contrast, uh, to talk about a Chris victory, which it would be nice to talk about, I suppose. Um, the masculine- They do exist, believe they, me. They do. Clients, they... Potential clients out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Maslin Jack case, right, um, about the prosecution for filling out the immigration form uh, uh, with uh, dishonest information, if I'm remembering it correctly, right? Yep. Um, yep. You represented Maslin Jack. That's yep. a victory. Elena yep. Kagan writes it, and she's dancing a jig the whole time because she's- uh, telling us how crazy it was for the prosecution for the United States to make the argument they made about any mistake on an immigration form should get you, you strip deported. Your, strip right? your citizenship. Correct. It's crazy right. talk. Yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. she knows that and explains it very clearly. Um, but the but her opinion in this case is so, seems so much more guarded and, and regretful even as she reaches the conclusion that she reaches. But she's not concurring and saying, like, like um, Ginsburg and Thomas did, and saying that we should think about double jeopardy in a different way. That would be one way of solving this like, conundrum. Right. And she's not suggesting disaggregating the inquiry from, you know, even if you keep some sense of sovereignty. She's not suggesting you, you disaggregate it from, from having to identify an authoritative source. She's right. pushing on that, right? Right. And what I'm suggesting is that that way, that, that is not sustainable. It, it, you know, it's it's difficult to distinguish. Like you say, well, what is the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico really? And is it really more like the home rule jurisdiction in the right. state, or is it really like the Indian tribes and in the and the United States? And what what is that relationship between the Indian tribes and the United States really? Like the many, like everything seems to be in that word really. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but she and she has starry decisis commitments that I think Breyer doesn't have. For example, the Kimball case, Kimball against Marvel, about. This antitrust case, Brulotte against Thice, and it, she goes on and on about stare decisis in a mm-hmm. way that, in that case, that suggests to me that she, that has that's impinging on her thinking about all this stuff in a way that Breyer just I don't think it cuts much well, ice and, with him. And, and, and Breyer says it oral argument, right? Like, how can we do this without overruling these four cases, right? So he wants to he also wants to do it in a way without overruling these cases. Well, that, he, at that least, was, he at least wants to be able to say something about how we can that do was, it. That was a question posed to counsel on the other side, wasn't it, Chris? I don't know if you. Boy, now you're testing my memory of that. Is, I don't. The, the, I, I just listened to the argument, so I have an unfair advantage. Oh, okay. Uh, but, okay. But he has this multi-part argument where he essentially lays down the five reasons that he puts in his opinion. The issue here, as I see it, which maybe it'll take a second, is there are four cases that say we don't have to reach these grand questions. All we have to do is decide what the source of power is. Now their argument is that even if you go back to the Four Acre Act which indeed did have the people of Puerto Rico making laws. Uh, And if you then add the Resolution 600, which delegated the authority to make the Constitution, the Constitution itself, which speaks of we, the people of Puerto Rico, making a law, the fact that later Congress and the President said 
Puerto Rico has a Republican form of government. The fact that subsequent to that, we went to the United Nations and had them withdraw the requirement to report on a colony because Puerto Rico is not a colony, and you know the words as well as I, and they sure sound like sovereign. And in Valley, which no one mentions, Trias Mange wrote that, in fact, all these laws, and he was talking about civil, but I suppose it applies to Commonwealth, too, are to be interpreted in light of the civil code tradition of Europe, which was the tradition that applied prior to 1900 and not the common law. I don't see, when you put all those things together, if you're looking at the facts of what the law of Puerto Rico is in the area, it sounds to me like it's civil code coming out of a constitution which I grant you was given by authority of Congress. So there we are. Now, uh, five things they've listed there that make it different, not only from anything you can think of, but from anything I can think of. So why don't you reply to those five things, if you want? Your Honor, those five things established — Take your time. (laughs) When you say, you know, what is the relationship really, and you keep saying that about these different relationships — Right. And and in part, that's because that's what the prior cases look like we should be asking. Yeah. In a way, right? That's the construct. So it might feel unsatisfying, but — but in the prior cases, it's like the question really results to, like, who actually won the shooting war and who would win today in a shooting war? And like, that, that feels awkward, if, right? Yeah, that's not a question that, like, the modern mind, you know, the, the very modern mind, like, accepts, right? Instead, we're looking for some formal legal relationship of authority. Right. And you're just not going to find it because, like, you know, all of these different relationships involve, like, tacit approval, like, tacit acceptance of some other entity making the decision. Like that is modern law, right? It is a it is a series of negotiations between institutions and tacit acceptance of their authority to resolve particular kinds of questions, which is why it's even so difficult to define the hierarchical relationship of states in the United States. Yes, the United States is supreme on all kinds. There's a supremacy clause after all. But there are, others, <laughs> there are other senses in which individual states are themselves supreme. You know, and the Supreme right. Court has been increasingly interested in specifying those instances, right? So do you think if they were writing on a clean slate and, there, and the insular cases ha- had, had never been – had never happened. Do you think it would have been easier to reach and easier for the a majority of the court to have reached uh, the conclusion Justice Breyer did? Well, there's a lot that I don't really, you know, that as I was reading the opinion and listening to the argument that I'm just not as steeped in as probably Chris is. Like the, these questions about Congress's power to, to recognize a kind of status that is neither a state nor a dependent territory – Right. And um, and so where and and so you fall into this line into this line of thinking that says whatever you call them, Commonwealth, whatever, they have the constitutional status of a dependent authority, which means that they're ultimately subject to congressional like and and the suggestion is, no, maybe Congress does have this power. And this is this arresting point that you made at oral argument, Chris, right, that this isn't a grant of power to Congress, not a restriction on its ability to to recognize and enter these sorts of arrangements. Hmm. So yeah, I, just a, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Just, just a couple of points I, was, I wanted to make, because I think you, you made some really good points there. I mean, one one really important thing is look, I, I don't like to lose, uh, but <laughs> if I'm going to lose, this was about the best opinion coming out the other way yeah. that I could have imagined. Um, I mean, J- Justice Kagan is very, very clear that she accepts really all of our premises in terms of the broader issues of Puerto Rico's political status, which at the end of the day, 
is kind of far more important to the people in Puerto Rico than the narrow double jeopardy question. As I said, I've said a couple of times, you know, that there, there, you could look at this case at two levels. And the reason that everybody in Puerto Rico was so passionate about this, I think the reason they reached out to me to argue it in the Supreme Court was as opposed to having, um, you know, uh, one of their people argued is that, they, that this is something that for them is so important on the political side of the house, not so much on the on the uh, criminal law side of the house. I mean, that you know, that they can live with that and they can work out something there. And, and you know, Justice Kagan, I, I agree with the point that you made earlier that this has kind of a regretful tone in the sense that, she, you know, she is somewhat saying is somewhat kind of apologetic and saying, look, I, re- I realize that Puerto Rico has you know, sovereignty in the way that one would often define sovereignty. And, you know, and I think the biggest kind of underlying constitutional issue, putting aside the the, the double jeopardy issue, is this question whether under the territorial clause, you can have such a thing as a self-governing territory and whether Congress can essentially say, you know, you can stay within the American political family, but we're basically going to relinquish certain powers to you and we've told the un that you that we can yes we've told the un yes we can have that and then we go before the supreme court and we say no you can't have that well and this was a very interesting issue which is really the 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 government the the federal government's brief here we haven't talked about that yet but and i know we probably you know you guys probably want to move on to other (laughs) podcasts but let me just say that the it was very very controversial when the federal government came in in a criminal case on the side of the criminal defendant, mm. and particularly when they came in in a Democratic administration on the kind of anti-Commonwealth side. I mean, traditionally, and, and this is, I think, counterintuitive for a lot of Americans, the Commonwealth Party in Puerto Rico has been identified with the Democratic Party in the United States, and the Statehood Party has been identified with the Republican Party. Mm. I think that kind of goes back to the you know post-World War II Truman era kind of, um, you know, um, moment in which the Commonwealth was created. And that, you know, that that was kind of the, the Democratic Party in Washington. And, and Luis Munoz Marin, the, 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 the Commonwealth governor of Puerto Rico for many years was, you know, very tied in with the Kennedy administration. And um, the so, so the, the, there's been very longstanding historical ties between the, 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 the Commonwealth Party in Puerto Rico and the Democratic Party in the states for a Democratic administration in Washington to file a brief that really took a very kind of wooden view of the territorial clause. And and I think that the the United States brief really called into question the legal status of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico in suggesting that, you know, you could really either be a, a, a state or you know, uh, with kind of full sovereignty or have no sovereignty, that there was no halfway house. It's very, like, it's very pro-colonial in concept and democratic only as a matter of grace. Yes, it was very, it was, it was a very surprising brief, I think, from, um, from, from the federal government, which was kind of, you know, inconsistent with, frankly, a lot of things that we had told the United Nations about Puerto Rico's political status. And, and, um, you know, it really, at the time, I remember this was, right before Christmas. And, you know, there there were phone calls with the Solicitor General and the governor of Puerto Rico and people in the White House. And it was a very dramatic moment when this brief came out. 
um, got a lot of play on the island politically. Huh. Um, but, you know, I think in retrospect, I totally understand what was going on. I've never had this confirmed by anybody, but you have to remember what was going on at the same time, which was basically the collapse, the economic collapse of Puerto Rico at the same time. And so the administration was trying to figure out how to deal with that. And so they were coming up with proposals for the law that eventually became PROMESA. And we haven't talked about this here, and I, I think it's beyond the scope of this conversation. But you know, one of the amazing things is that for from the beginning of the Commonwealth in 1952 until um, last year when PROMESA was enacted, the federal government never got involved in any Puerto Rican internal governance. It never tried to veto a law passed by the by the Puerto Rican legislature. It never, it, it, it had absolutely hands-off. Puerto Rico was in in law, in fact, completely autonomous in its laws. Um, PROMESA really broke with that tradition. And all of a sudden, you know, we have a federal control board, which is, is um, exercising, you know, significant authority in Puerto Rico. Like every, you know, significant contract or, or decision with financial impact now has to go through this board. I think that was kind of first and foremost in their mind, and they didn't want to jeopardize that, um, you know, in, in this case. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, from from the point of view of, like, the, the Commonwealth um, Party people or the Commonwealth supporters they were actually perfectly happy with a lot of the language in this in Justice Kagan's opinion because she didn't deny um, to the contrary. She actually reaffirmed Puerto Rico's unique status and how um, you know the, the, the territorial clause. She went out. She says you know the territorial clause means that Congress may enable a territory's people to make large scale choices about their own political institutions, and that Congress did exactly that in enacting Public Law 600 and approving the Puerto Rican Constitution. And, and she then says, you know, prime examples of what Felix Frankfurter once termed inventive statesmanship regarding the island. So she endorsed, in a sense, the very kind of pro-Commonwealth view of the, or, or at least that, that the Constitution gives Congress the flexibility to do something like the Commonwealth. Hmm. Uh, but ironically, that's kind of all happening at the same time that the, the, the historical way the Commonwealth has operated free of interference from Washington was collapsing and, and in a sense vanishing because of the, the control board. Hmm. I think we've got time for one more quick thing. And this is because the, the one, the one piece of history we have not covered is the, is, is the fact that after the, after 1952, this, I mean, the story, the political story obviously doesn't end there. And you have this series of plebiscites, um, non-binding because Congress will not authorize, uh, one of these things. Um, uh, as a as a kind of binding referendum, and they they go a bunch of ways, and there are a series of them. The latest one I think was in June of 2017, uh, right, Chris? This is the one yes. that the is it the PPD party boycotted, but it the, you, the, the, the Commonwealth Party boycotted, yeah, yeah, and is and, and um and so it, I think here, here I'm just looking at it, it says like the turnout was only 23 percent, whereas in the 2012 referendum, what was it? It was 78 percent. Participation. So these are referendums about what? About so the choice between three options, like Commonwealth Plus, meaning let's you know, bulk up our Commonwealth status, right? Usually involving like more spending from the federal, the, the number of things that they want, right? Um, and and or statehood, 
or, or complete independence mm. as a as an independent nation. And it seems like things have been trending over the years toward statehood, if I read these polls correctly and kind of do the math correctly, even with the boycott um, maybe towards statehood. But maybe I'm misreading it. And so I, I wanted to ask about this before we let you go, just to think, just to ask your view of like how, what do you, what do you think of that? Maybe you're the wrong person to ask. I don't know. But what do you think about the politics in, in Puerto Rico on this issue? And and maybe the Trump presidency and the financial collapse have kind of, you know, flung an asteroid into this whole politics. But what do you think, Chris? Well, you know, I think this is what politics in Puerto Rico is fundamentally all about. And, you know, the, the, the two parties kind of vigorously contest the, you know, the fairness of these questions. I mean, there have been, as you said, a series of these referenda over the years as to whether Puerto Rico should become uh, a state. And usually it's something that happens when the statehood party wins the, the governorship. And, uh-huh. You know, there's always a lot of dispute over the way the questions are phrased, etc. And I, I think the truth is, people in Puerto Rico themselves cannot agree on the status issue. I think, frankly, until the, the Commonwealth digs itself out of this terrible financial hole that it's in right now, it, it, it's really not probably realistic to think about um, statehood at this point where... Um, you know, Puerto Rico is in this in this terrible situation. I, I think that they need to get their economic house in order. Now, if the state of people would immediately respond, well, the the you can't get the political house in order or the economic house in order until you get the political house in order because we need to do certain things like change the Jones Act, which limits the shipping to the island and makes everything more expensive, yeah. makes it harder for us. I mean, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg dialogue. It's been going on now for for sixty years, but um, it's interesting you, know, you mentioned that because I've been reading uh, our colleague Mercer Baradaran's book about black banking, and one of the big themes in that book is the is the um, the difficulty of clawing out of an economic hole when you are an isolated economy, and. Yeah. And so I don't know, you know, and I've read a little bit about this, the financial crisis, and some of it appears to be due to mismanagement and the um, um, at the federal level. And, and so I'm sure there's some of that. And but I don't know how much of it is. And, and the Jones Act, um, as far as I can tell, doubles shipping fees relative to surrounding islands uh, to uh, to Puerto Rico. Um, and, and that that can't help. And I don't know how much else is bound up in a kind of financial isolation if it is that um this would be you know how, how do you think about it? i mean how much do you have you assess blame in any way or how, how do you no, think about I mean, how to call I, out yeah i'm I, i'm just i'm just a lawyer i'm just a, play, a simple country lawyer so <laughs> you know I being, being a lawyer deputizes you to make I, any I claim about client, anything <laughs> that allows me to disclaim any uh, <laughs> you know, i had my client i i argued my client's case and you know uh again i think People in Puerto Rico, this is in their blood. I mean, these kind of uh, status issues, um, I think, color their view of, of really all political things. And, you know, I know there's very passionate people on both sides. And, you know, that, that that's not really a debate on which, you know, I've ever had occasion to take sides. Or, right. you know, um, But, you know, I think it's something that is is not likely to be resolved uh, anytime soon. I mean, it's a debate that's been going on for more than a hundred years. Um, in, in fact, it was interesting in doing the research for this case. 
I was reading some memos that Felix Frankfurter wrote when he was the law officer of the Department of War in charge of um, insular affairs. And so this was his docket, basically, back in the Wilson administration. And, um, you know, he, 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 some of his memos said, you know, Puerto Ricans argue more vehemently about politics than any other people <laughs> I've ever encountered. And I think that certainly hasn't changed over the past century. And, you know, I, I do think that Justice Kagan's opinion in this case is, you know, does its level best to sidestep the thicket of political issues that are there and some of these broader, more abstract questions about sovereignty and says, look, we're putting on green eye shades. We are only focused on this very narrow double jeopardy question. And, you know, she goes on to frame that as this, you know, in, in a way, you know, again, looking towards ultimate source of authority that in a sense does by framing the question that way, it, it will lead you to Congress. If you say you need the ultimate source of authority, um, I, you know, I think an opinion could have been written that says, look, the people of Puerto Rico, given that constitutional moment, um, were the source of authority for the Constitution of Puerto Rico. But, you know, then once you go to ultimate source of authority, hmm. all roads do lead back to Congress. So, you know, I think she could have drawn a line there for double jeopardy purposes. But, you know, I think, again, from everybody's point of view, including the federal governments, again, which had an interest on the double jeopardy side of the House of being able to prosecute people, they nonetheless came in um, opposing, you know, supporting the criminal defendant in this case, as I said earlier, which is, is just so ironic. It's not often that the federal government comes in on the side of the criminal defendant, but I think they were primarily concerned about some of the broader sovereignty issues and the and, and the, therefore potential loss of federal control over Puerto Rico. And, you know, I think the justices, they, 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 they tried to kind of um, create a, a narrow space that would allow them to resolve the, the double jeopardy issue without, in a sense, opining on these broader political issues. Oh, this has been great. I mean, absolutely fascinating. And, and I, I, sh- I should say as well that it is not lost, I think, on any of us that there's a certain like there's a certain like problematic nature to three non-Puerto Ricans spending a long time talking about the status of Puerto Rico when it goes to the self-identity and self-determination of Puerto Rico. But we do the best we can. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, and I, an say, issue. and I will say and I will say in our defense, Christian, that um, that if Chris was good enough for the people of Puerto Rico, he's certainly good enough for you <laughs> oh, and me. He's way, way better. <laughs> he's way, way so, better than good enough for, for our show. Right. We're, we're very, very lucky to have him here talking. To Ab- us. Absolutely. But I, it is, you know, it is an issue on which um, like it raises this kind of this kind of tension in the in the colonial history of Europe and European nations. And it's important, I think, in that in that very respect that, you know, you and I know that this isn't the only conversation we should have on this topic. There's a lot more to learn from a lot more people about these very important issues at at a time when people in Puerto Rico really need our help. Yeah. Right. So like that's very, very important. I agree. And and I have to say, too, that um, having read the opinions and listened again to the oral argument, um, you ably represented Puerto Rico, Chris. <laughs> it was no, a it you. was a really 
I mean, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. It was a really great argument. It's one of those. I do listen at 2x, and so it makes you sound much quicker and smarter, uh, maybe, maybe than you were. <laughs> it, it, you know, uh, like I it, listen at normal speed, and it, so it, I wish every bit is good. Then it it, it, raise, it raises Chris uh, and, and the justice to just like genius level, re, you know, mental reflexes. But um, but I have to say that the responses were, I thought. You know, amazing. It was a it was a very high level argument right. as Supreme Court arguments go, and um, and you so, can tell they really appreciated the gravity of it. Absolutely, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again, Chris. This has been amazing. Listen, this was such a pleasure. I thought this was a really fun discussion. I I um, don't know if I achieved our, my goal of saying something sufficiently sensational to make this a viral podcast, but <laughs> um, you know. Uh, I tried my best, guys, so uh, I hope your listeners enjoyed this. Well, m- maybe the only way that our show can be described as viral or that it ever goes viral is it gives people an unexplained headache. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really enjoyed this, and I appreciate your, your reaching out to me, and um, uh, enjoyed our discussion.